0: TNKR Media.
1: Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, our 15th season showcasing stories from outstanding business people presented by Video Canada. My name is Sandrine Rastello, standing in for Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton of Video Canada. Hello, Mike. Excited to be with you again.
2: Hey, Sandrine, how are you?
1: (laughs) Good. This week on Inspiring Entrepreneurs by Video Canada, our guest is Chloe Ryan, CEO and founder of Acrylic Robotics. Her intelligent robots enable artists to replay their brushstrokes with real paint on canvas, making it easier for them to make a living and democratizing artwork. And she recently received three Dragon's offers and refused them all.
2: It's pretty impressive. You know, you know, you're sitting in a comfortable position and, and and know what you want when you turn down an opportunity with the dragon. So uh, it's it's really cool. And, and you know, her passion and her sense of execution and and just everything. She just exudes this sense of confidence that is uh, I, I, I can guarantee you our guests will hear it
1: for sure and you know also hearing from ai at last from a positive angle you know is also refreshing i have to say
2: most definitely is i mean it it it's going to lead to at some point this ongoing conversation of of where how do we use ai for good versus uh, use it for good or versus evil i guess and and this whole discussion certainly with uh, with chloe is the, is the whole intellectual property component of of the work that she's doing as well as the work of artists and getting to uh, getting artists to be paid I I mean, it, it reminds me of the early days of uh, of, of music, uh, online streaming and, and everything else. I mean, this is a whole different aspect in an area that uh, that I, I, you know, I don't know that much about it, but I, I certainly feel like she's kind of leading the way here in terms of what this business model is going to look like for, for the artists themselves.
1: Definitely. This is going to be a good conversation. Plus, later in the show, we'll talk with Shelly Smith, indirect tax partner at BDO Canada, about the underutilized housing tax. What is it who must pay it? And what are the penalties? But first, let's take a look at some current events. Well, our topic this week is more timeless than current, because it uh, it is uh, some wisdom about leadership and success that you chose to share with us. So the first one uh, that you wanted to share is about different leadership styles, and it is five there. Uh, you know, I've read all this, I'm like, oh, I can picture different bosses I've had over the years and how they fit there. Um, do you want to talk a little more about the different styles and, and why it matters?
2: most definitely. I think I'm going to take a a wee step back here and and just kind of why um you know for those of you who may know uh, I was managing partner of uh, FL Fuller Landau for 19 years and so I started at 36 and I would love to say that I was leading for 19 years but I probably wasn't actually leading for 19 years. I, I you know, I I started out young. I was managing people of, you know, three three different generations. Uh, and, um, you know, you'll learn an awful lot by making mistakes and boy, did I learn a lot. Um, but you know, the one thing you do realize is, is leadership is not a title. Leadership is something that, uh, you exude. It's a presence. It's, uh, it's about a team. It's about everybody else. Leadership to me is not about the individual. It's about the the greater good, the collective good at the end of the day. So I started, uh, actually quite a few years ago, um, Anthony Calvio and I had done a speaking series on, uh, leadership from the uh, the locker room to the boardroom. And it spawned an awful lot of, of ideas and thoughts over the years. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is, is is things that have been developed over time and, and giving us an interesting perspective. And, and you know, if you look at the titles, um, the first one is is leadership by title. And, you know, as you said, Sandra, and we can all see somebody who walks around with their business card or their nameplate on their door and says, hey, I'm in charge here and you have to follow me because that's what my business card says. And, you know, a lot of people like to to think that this applies only to assembly line or, or shop floor models, or you know, retail uh, bosses. This is is present, if not more present, in offices and professional firms. You know, give somebody a title, promote them to manager, promote them to boss, promote them to partner, and all of a sudden they think people need to follow them. Because that's what their title says. And, and as I said, I may have led for 19 years, but I'm not sure I actually led for all 19 of those years because you learn along the way that in order to lead, it is just really not a title. The title equates to a position. It doesn't equate to uh, how people will follow you and what they're going to do. So this to me is, is, is kind of the first five layers of, of, uh, of a leadership. And don't get me wrong, there are opportunities and there are situations where this is a must. So, you know, as much as it may sound like it's the lower rung of a of a, of a, of a leadership ladder, it does have a place. Um, you know, if you're going to look at leadership by permission, which is number two, where basically at the end of the day, your team allows you to lead. And, and you kind of look at that and you go, what do you mean they allow you to lead? Well, I think we live in a world right now where nobody wants to be led, but everybody... Needs to be led in in some form or another. And we find ourselves in many situations where, you know, it's great to say, well, I don't want anybody to lead me, but. Does that mean you're going to turn around and lead everybody else or are you just going to do your own thing? And certainly, you know, the last three years post-COVID, a lot of navel-gazing and, and inward perspective have, have found us. And I, and I think we need to find our way back to to leadership. And and leadership by permission is, in some cases, just exactly what it says. I allow you to lead because either I don't want to or nobody else is there. And sometimes it's just by default. But the realism is it is still there. And this, But this is the first level where you're starting to have people understand their team, they need to understand who they are and why they're there and you're bringing in a little bit of emotional intelligence into the component here
1: because i was it's been my experience that uh, a leader left that everybody hated and and they were asked who would you like as a leader and uh, they weren't too sure okay maybe that guy because he's not the other guy uh but then when that person comes you know, as you said, I mean, one evolves. So, are you sort of confident that someone who arrives as the second type of leader can evolve into a better leader?
2: Almost oh, definitely. I, I think you know, it, it's interesting. You know, we we live in an opportunity, an opportunistic world. Uh, some people will jump on it because the opportunity does does present itself. Um, sometimes, like I said before, it is by default. But, you know, interestingly enough, uh, most people know what they don't want. They don't know what they do want. And when it comes to leadership, I think that's often the case. Oh, I don't like person A. I don't like person B. So what would you like to lead you? Well, I, I don't know what that looks like or I don't know who that is, but I just know what I don't want. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of times the third level of of, uh, of leadership, which is leadership by productivity, kind of starts to now continue to move up that that in the the ladder in leadership because now what you've got is you're leading by example. Example, right? So a lot of organizations, and, and you see this in a lot of sports teams. Uh, you know, you'll see the captain of a sports team who's not outspoken, who is not uh somebody who is gonna be constantly rah-rah cheerleading but you know, shows up as the first one in the locker room and the last one to leave, and they're leading by example. And these these leaders carry a very strong uh, presence. So they may not be creating what you would consider, Sandrine, to be maybe that the epitome of a future leader, but they are creating an ethos, they're creating a, a morale, they're creating a moral way of doing things, uh, and, you know, end up, what ends up happening is we end up with execution at all levels, increased profitability, and and in many cases, even a lower turnover rate.
1: But, you know, when I was thinking of this productivity thing, um, I was also wondering, the first one to arrive, the last one to leave, you know, um, isn't that putting pressure on your teams to do the same and at a time where a lot of younger workers no longer want that?
2: It is the point of contention, I think, in a generational discussion that, You know, let's be honest. I think you can go back as long as there have been workers uh, and and bosses, and so long as there's a generational difference, there's always a a differing opinion on things. And you know, you you take that uh, you take that discussion into play, and uh, you work forward, and you say, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm going to come in at seven, I'm going to leave at seven. Well, I expect the rest of you to do that. And this is where I think COVID has really turned a lot of this concept on its ear, is that you know, not only are you not coming in at seven, you're not coming in in many. Cases right. You're going to work from home, you're working on flex time, it's creating an opportunity for people to evolve into a new type of leader. Uh, And and I'm not sure yet we've completely developed what that leader is going to look like until you get to our next level, which is the leadership by developing talent. So once I get away from this discussion of coming in at 7 and leaving at 7, you may or may not agree with that moral perspective, Uh, it's very hard to argue that if you lead by developing talent. It is wrong. I don't think under any circumstance, whether you're physically face to face or not, now it brings challenges. You know, a lot of us grew up learning to mentor and coach and watch physically on site body language interactions. Now it just means if you're going to do it remotely, you've got to find a different way to do it. Doesn't mean it no longer exists. It doesn't mean we no longer need leaders. We need to now continue to develop leaders and, and talent, and I think this one right now is probably the one we're struggling with the most, is how do we develop talent? I look at the young professionals, I look at young people that are working in retail, the role model isn't the same as it was before, because we're not necessarily sitting in the same physical space as we did before. You know, the, By developing talent, you're developing uh, and creating and giving power to others. You're allowing them to invest in people, creating opportunities and growth. It's it's the buzzwords that everybody wants to hear when they take a new job is, you know, give me that opportunity to grow. Give me this chance to be reproduced into a leader. And I think this is the type of thing that we need to continue to do. But we're going to have to change the way we approach some of these things. What are the three main factors in developing talent? Very high level of teamwork. The bar is raised on its own and people stay. And I think that's where most of us want to get to.
1: Because I, you know, if I'm being blunt here, you're a new leader, you haven't chosen the team that you're leading and then, oh, wow, my team is not that good. You know, they're not, I'm, I'm trying to show them all different directions. What do you do? How do you become a better leader? How do you take them with you if, if, if you realize that may not be the right fit?
2: well if you figure you're starting out by your team not being very good you're going to have a huge uphill battle no matter what i mean you've got to find the good in whoever is there you've got to find an opportunity unless you're going to come in and one fell swoop get rid of everybody you have to work with uh, with what's there and you I mean the ultimate goal to a leader is is really our 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 last one which is that apex which is eventually building somebody to replace you And, you know, these are opportunities. that These leaders have excellent reputations. They build long-term organizations. They build dynasties. Uh, They learn to replace themselves and eventually move themselves out of a job. They have high levels of sincerity, not easy to find. They have high levels of vi, not so easy to find. And the team is always number one. It's not about themselves or just a few people. It's about the best interests of the organization. Those leaders are few and far between.
1: I could speak about this all day long because I'm really passionate about <laughs> about recognizing being led a good leader and always so badly warning one so so thank you maybe we can continue
2: The one last point I want to put is this does not mean leader as in the top the CEO leadership goes top to bottom anybody who's leading people this applies to you can be an awesome leader if you only have one or two people below you
1: Thank you Mike to be continued Our guest is Chloe Ryan, CEO and founder of Acrylic Robotics. Chloe, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and we can't wait to discuss your entrepreneurial journey, including your Dragon's experience. But first, (laughs) we want to know all about the happy union of robots and art. Tell us what Acrylic Robotics does.
0: For sure. So we're building the world's first way to make painted artwork at scale. So in a nutshell, if you remember nothing else from today, we make art with robots in support of independent artists. So... Fundamentally, how the technology works is we have artists design pieces using our digital software. You can imagine an artist on an iPad, and then we have robotic arms that dip in paint using real paint on canvas and redo each of those same strokes so that an artist, instead of just selling one original painting for a really high price point through a gallery, they can sell a whole limited edition collection of actual paintings with that texture uh, at scale and at a more accessible price.
2: But I think it's important to emphasize that this is not the robot making the art. It actually yes. is still the artist creating the art and then changing the medium from a digital platform onto canvas or whatever, uh, whatever that that physical medium is going to be.
0: A hundred percent. And it's a super important distinction. It's yeah, it's not AI art. It's a it, You can think of it as a robot uh, being a digital twin or a physical twin of the artist doing those same strokes. But yes, the original design concept comes from the artist.
2: So, where does the idea come from? I mean, we, we certainly see a lot of artists working in the digital mediums these days, and 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 you know the I guess it, it it's a whole new change to the way some of us older folks see the old uh, the, <laughs> the the art world. Um, but maybe give us a little bit of a, a background of maybe start with where you came from, how you got into this, and and why this has become such an interesting and an excellent uh, process for you.
0: A hundred percent. So the the origin story is, so I'm from Ottawa and I started selling my paintings when I was about 14. That was one of my first, uh, (laughs) first sources of income. And I quickly became really frustrated with how there was no way to scale. So I looked at, you know, I looked at my friends who were authors and I said, they can work so hard, pour their heart and soul into this work of literature, a book. They've got the printing press. They've got eBooks. As soon as they make one thing, millions of people around the world can enjoy it. We see the same thing happen with music. You know, we've got recording devices and ways to stream and with film. But with visual art, I was still stuck, you know, I would sit down at my my art studio desk, I would spend 40 hours, three, four weeks uh, making a given piece, and I would only be able to sell it to one person, even if I had multiple people interested. And I sort of did the math on that, and I said, okay, if I'm spending a month making each painting, and I'm selling it for four or five hundred dollars, which is what the market would price it at, and what sort of the people and, you know, the people around me were willing to pay, uh, I said, well, I'm making like two or three dollars an hour. (laughs) And... uh, I, I was a teenager that was fine at the time I was still excited about that but I went how on earth am I going to grow this into into a sustainable living and I realized that the way that artists do that is they have to charge these really you know exorbitant prices through no fault of their own and the art and the art com- should command that value that's not the thing I've got a problem with but I, I just looked at myself and I, and I looked at the, the art market and I said there's all this demand for art at the sort of you know $300 to $1,000 price range that artists cannot afford to produce and sell to. So that was that was a bit of the origin story. I uh <laughs> I started out and I, I moved to Montreal, started studying mechanical engineering. And in my second year, I started building a painting robot. At the beginning, it was to help me make my paintings faster. And then, you know, we can we can dive into what, what's changed since then. But that was the original origin story, and looking at, you know, technology has found a way to bring all of these other creative art forms from the elite to the general public and realizing that the same thing hadn't really happened with visual art prints tried nft's tried uh, you know digital art is maybe getting there but the same thing hadn't been hadn't been built
2: I know a few artists would be happy to make two or three bucks an hour these days. So, yeah, yeah it's it's, 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 a, it's a tough market for a lot of people that uh, that want to work there. I, you know, yeah. I look at this, and I guess uh, two things come to mind initially. The first is, uh, and I, you t- kind of touched on it. And we'll come back to it a bit later. But this whole uh, ability to to sell and royalty and IP ownership and all the rest of that. But you know, if I if I look to if you go back twenty or thirty years, I mean the only idea of any kind of reproduction was a poster or it was a gicle or it was something that took you know this phenomenally expensive piece of artwork and brought it down to to the mass mass level if you will it, it, is this effectively the new generation of that
0: that's kind of how i see it and and the big difference being that we've got that texture there's actually some really cool uh, studies that have looked at the ways that your brain activates when you look at original works of art you've got you've got your motor neurons that actually will mimic the way that the artist may have done particular strokes because you can see that texture and you can see you know the the direction of strokes and stuff like that there's a, there's some really cool parts of your brain that light up and and that's not the type of thing that happens when you look at a photo print where you can't see the art creation process. And whether that's a gicle or a lithograph or a print or a poster, that doesn't change that. And then I guess on the artist side, problem with that whole market being that people just won't pay very much for them. You know, back back uh, back before we had really high quality digital cameras and the internet, gicles and lithographs, an artist could say, I made only 10 or I made only 100. And that was legitimately the only 10 or the only 100 that were in production. Nowadays, it's tricky for artists because you have to take these high quality photographs or you put your art in a gallery. Anybody can take a photo, print it out at Staples, download it from your website, print it out at Staples and say, now I have a print of the artist's work and there's not really anything you can do to prevent against that and manage authenticity and scarcity, which is so essential to to art. And that means that people just won't pay very much for prints nowadays. It's usually about 5% of the value of the original work, which means that an artist has to sell so many prints to be able to make a living. And it's it's uh, I'm just tying back to your earlier point as well. About how artists would be happy to make a few dollars an hour these days, it's true. It's uh, Canada seventy five percent of artists live below uh, live on ten thousand dollars a year through their art, which is which is crazy. You know, most artists living below the poverty line, and that's exactly part of the problem that we're trying to trying to address.
2: But let's get geeky here for a second and go back on the yeah. technology <laughs> side. Um, you know, you talk about taking uh, a digital uh, medium uh, uh, rendering so how does that pick up texture how does that understand strokes I mean the individual is not I'm assuming not every artist has the robotic piece that with them so you're going to take something that they've produced and mimic them how do you how do you get that into that I guess the the AI or the machine learn?
0: so in this case the artist has to be alive and choosing to work with us we don't go we don't take images of of you know old works and or whatnot. So the artist says, okay, I want to work with you. They download the software and then they use a It's a brushstroke tool and it looks a lot like a physical paintbrush. So they add these digital brushstrokes. So again, you can imagine somebody sitting down with an iPad, if you've ever used MS Paint or an Adobe mm-hmm. Illustrator type software, something like that. Or if you've seen a, one of your kids use Procreate on their iPad, looking very similar to that where we can see how the colors mix on, on the digital canvas and stuff like that. We then collect all that data. So data like the pressure, that the person was applying the type of brush you know is it a round brush what size and the obviously the pigment and stuff like that and the speed and the tilt on canvas we take all those data points and we've built the software and the technology to you know condense all that and pass right. it to the robot in, in discrete brush strokes so yeah again it's not working from an image the artist has to actually be creating the piece
2: well basically everything i had in ms-dos still looked like an ashtray so it's, it's it <laughs> didn't help me in any way <laughs>
0: <laughs> i was
1: i was wondering like because uh, for for this idea you have to have two sides on board right the artists that you need to convince and also the financial world that you need to convince did yeah. you take on both at the same time or did you start sort of surveying artists to see how you know how they like that idea
0: I started it with artists because I always thought, you know, if we can get artists on board, they know their markets, they've been selling to, you know, their art buyers for years, decades. Uh, And if we can, if we can get their buy-in, we can capture their market, whether or not that uh, hypothesis assumption holds true, you know, we'll see. But yeah, we started, I interviewed dozens and dozens of artists at the beginning, and it really did change a lot of my, a lot of my concept on the business model. For example, like I was building this robot for myself and it was, I chatted with a few other artists who said, Oh my gosh! Can I can I have one? And I so I went okay. I'll sell I'll sell the robots to artists. Chatted with a few artists and realized that uh, you know when you're when you're living below the the poverty line there aren't that many artists who are willing to pay forty thousand dollars for a robot. So so anyways that's the type of uh type of business model change that I that I had in response to that type of feedback. But uh, no, there's it's a two sided it's a two sided market right. So we have to get the artists. Uh, interested and we have to get their buy-in and then we also have to get buy-in from buyers and, you know, sort of a a belief that this is real art, it's from the artist, uh, that kind of thing.
1: But we'll be talking more about uh, the model and in particular how uh, you went to see the dragons and, and, you know, what the feedback (laughs) you got there. Tell us a bit what happened there and how it plays into your development plans.
0: Yeah, so Dragon's Den, it was a it was definitely an experience. I guess the context there being that something like this requires a ton of research and development, R and D. We spent about two years <laughs> in basically a you know, a windowless basement robotics lab testing out different things, trying to get something that worked. And then earlier this summer, we finally produced our first ever large-scale two-by-three-foot piece. We were so excited. And that's when we said, okay, it's time to start getting some publicity here. It's time to start getting some, in- some interest from uh, some interest from investors. And what better way to do that than to, then to go on Dragon's Den? And <laughs> so that was sort of the catalyst. And they actually they reached out to us. I think somebody must have seen a video of a robot painting and said this would be this would be cool on TV. So so we packed up, headed to Toronto to pitch on Dragon's Den. It went it went quite well. We got we got a few different offers. I ended up not taking any of them, uh, but it was still a crazy experience. And also a big kudos thumbs up to, you know, people see interest in this idea at sort of the national scale on this on this big stage and it's worth pursuing. So so that was a big uh, a big leap forward for us.
2: So why didn't you take any? They wanted too much of a piece <laughs> of the pie. Uh, yeah, I they, wanted... they weren't giving you the value
0: you thought it was worth. <laughs> wanted wanted too much. Like at the end of the day, Dragons Den, it's a lot of uh, we call CPG or or consumer goods companies, and they want to be a, a third. Of, they want to own a third of the company. Uh, we've, you know, I spent the past two years building this deep tech solution and it wasn't quite the same amount of, of money for the same same amount of the company that we would get from from other types of investors. But nonetheless, it was an amazing marketing opportunity and we, we coincided the launch of our platform with the launch of Dragon's Den, which also brought a lot of, of buzz to the platform launch. So great experience overall.
2: So talking about r and I mean, the, the whole discussion here is, you know, first of all, I'm sure they weren't going to give you enough to cover the R&D, but uh, <laughs> certainly not for your time. Let's talk about two bucks an hour. Um, I think the, the reality when you look at this is, you know, the R&D is a huge component on the technology side of all of this. You're a byproduct of uh, of Centech, and I believe you're still uh, working there and part of the propulsion program. So maybe, you know, take an opportunity to, to plug a little bit, I guess, uh, in terms of what that's done for you and and, and how you see that continuing to, to develop, not only for you, but maybe for other opportunities.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I joke about the spending two years in a basement robotics lab. That's AdSentec.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> they're a uh, they're a deep tech incubator, one of UBI Global's top ten uh, across the world. Their mission is basically, how can we take these. Companies that have a long road to market, so medical technology companies, AI companies, quantum companies, where there's a ton of research that has to be done before you can start selling, how can we incubate, incubate them, give them resources, give them advice and strategy to cover that period? So it's a two-year program. So that was perfect for us. We were a perfect showcase of, you know, it took two years to get to a point where we could start producing, start launching. Uh, and yeah, we're based at, we're based, so that's uh, that's Centec, based out of Etea's campus.
2: So- Let's switch gears here a little bit. Let's go corporate. Let's go uh, business let's side go of things. Let's go corporate, okay. <laughs> um, the digital art galleries uh, are continuing to to I don't know about replace, but certainly compete with the bricks and mortar art galleries. Um, we're also starting to see you know in the art industry significantly more of a royalty based mentality than we're used to seeing, which as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, has been more of a uh, you know books and uh, music and everything else. How do you think what's your doing is going to have an opportunity to to change and influence what's going on. I mean, this could be a game changer when it comes to the art industry.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I, I hope it will. So on the digital versus physical, you're totally, you're completely right. And the big catalyst for that was COVID actually, where we saw a ton of physical brick and mortar ga- galleries, unfortunately, having to shut down because they didn't have the foot traffic. And then the the market for digital online art absolutely exploding. Uh, I think 2021, it was about 25 billion uh, of online art sales, which is crazy. Uh, so, so anyways, big boom in digital art uh, sales, but also in digital art creation. I saw this stat a little while ago and it absolutely blew me away. Uh, Canadian Art, Canada Arts Council, that 54% of artists create digital first works, so so primarily digital and 89% of artists now use some form of digital art tool as part of their creation process, which just speaks to how much digital tools have have sort of taken the art industry by storm and that's recent it's a big recent jump not to not to mention generative image to or text to image AI art models and stuff like that so I I classify ourselves as one of those types of advanced new technologies that's going to help artists create uh, in different ways and then yeah speaking about the royalties model I think we're seeing that take all different kinds of creative industries as well and and that's exactly the type of thing that I want to continue using beyond just this first business model. So, how we work right now is it's a commission basis. So, for example, uh, uh, you know, an artist might sell their original piece for ten thousand dollars. Most people will never be able to buy that. We sell, you know, ten for a thousand. That's just an example. It depends on the artist and and a variety of different factors. But it shows you sort of a ten x price reduction, and then we'll split that with the artist. So, uh, so the artist gets a certain percentage. We get a certain percentage. That's not a royalties model, but where we see a royalties model coming into play is when we start to do things like style transfer where, hey, artist, you've built up a huge body of work using our technology. Would you like to find ways to monetize that where, you know, for example, this other creator wants to use part of your style to make a, a segment of their art piece that looks like yours and will allow them to do that with your consent and while giving you royalties. So that's that's how we see that coming in.
2: You bring up a huge point here. You're talking about IP. I mean, the artist generally, you know, you controlled your 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 painting. You controlled, you know, one piece of art. Now you're talking about protecting IP. You're talking legal possession. You're talking about control. I mean, this is a whole new area for a lot of artists. And and how mm-hmm. are you how are you helping them protect and 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 look after their work now that it's it's floating out in cyberspace?
0: Yeah, part of that for us is managing scarcity. So Every work that we make is limited edition. Even if the artist says, I want a thousand, we're still going to cap it at a thousand. And once that a thousandth is produced, nothing more. You can think of it like we burn the matrix. Uh, we burn the, the soap carving wood block or whatnot, uh, the digital equivalent. And that's, that's different in terms of owning your IP than for example, making photo prints where again, it's tricky because anybody can take the image and reproduce that. Nobody can capture the data that we've captured from the original creation process. And then on the sort of AI art side, the big problem with these AI art technologies is that they don't have proper compensation, so royalties, or uh, or consent or acknowledgement that this is from the artist's style, right? So that's the, again, we don't need to dive into all of the legal bits and bobs here, but the core concept that we're driving forward is that an artist owns their style. If we want to use it, we have to ask them, and we have to compensate them for it in some way, shape, or form, depending on how we're using it. And that's sort of a core ethos that's important to me that I want to take forward in whatever types of future technologies we build. Yeah.
1: Because really, this has propelled you onto the whole debate about AI in a way, you know, maybe AI used for the greater good, uh, you know, the good force of AI. I mean, are you taking part in this debate? Uh, you know, when we see companies wanting to take a pause with AI, how, how, where do <laughs> you stand there?
0: Yeah, I mean it's tricky. I think it's I think it's fundamentally hard to actually implement a pause like that. I think the ethos and the spirit behind a lot of those open letters and calls for pausing are positive. Like we need some sort of better framework to regulate AI in the same way that we've got frameworks to regulate what types of medical devices. You know, you can't just invent a medical device in your in your garage and start using it on people. So I, I think that we need some of the same things for that. And anyways, I know that's a bit broad, but yeah.
2: So one last thought as we as we come to a conclusion here, that, that this has obviously got to open the gateway for uh, artists with physical disabilities or degenerative diseases, eye disease, whatever the case may be. How is you know is this part of the target that's here, and how will this start to help uh, artists that uh, that find themselves in those situations?
0: So that was not my initial goal, and it wasn't until we did our first sort of small-scale local art show where uh, I met an artist who was physically disabled, and her she. L- the thing that she loved was digital art. She couldn't stand up, you know, she can't stand up and reach and and make some big canvas. And she saw a robot painting and she was like, oh my God, this is insane. Like, please can I have this? And she, you know, we were chatting with her at the event and she's going, I can only, you know, move my hands on a very limited area, which means that I can make these very small digital drawings. And with us, she can make masterpieces that cover the whole wall because it's it's vectors that scale, right? So again, that's not why I started the company, but it's really uh, it's a really cool byproduct that I'm excited about.
1: Thank you, Chloe. You're creating a whole new model for artists. Uh, we can't wait to see what you're going to do next uh, with Acritic Robotics. Chloe Ryan, CEO and founder of Acritic Robotics, will have her one piece of advice in just a moment. But first, let's check in with our video subject matter expert guest, Shelly Smith. In Direct Tax Partner at Video Canada, Shelley, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
1: So our topic today is a sort of last-minute reminder about the underutilized housing tax, also known as UHT. So remind us, listeners, uh, what is the underused housing tax, uh, commonly referred to as UHT? So.
3: You've probably heard uh, some rumblings again this month about this tax as the due date is quickly approaching for the 2022 filings. So what is this UHT? It's a new annual federal 1% tax that was introduced effective for 2022 for anyone uh, regarding the ownership of vacant and what we commonly refer to as underused housing in Canada. So what is it? It's really, it's a tax on vacant or not fully rented residential property. Sounds pretty easy. Not so. What is residential property? Well, uh, the government has defined it to be single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, residential condos, and all of them have to have a private kitchen, a private bath, and a private living area. What it doesn't apply to is high-rise apartment buildings, hotels, motels, or buildings that have more than four dwellings.
2: So does this apply, Shelley, to Canadians, uh, non-residents? Who's in play here in terms of of a taxpayer?
3: Exactly. When the law first came out, uh, everybody thought that it would only apply to non-Canadian citizens or non-Canadian permanent residents. However, this law um, refers to two types of owners, an excluded owner and an affected owner. So an excluded owner is a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident of Canada. It also includes charities, uh, businesses in the mush sector, which we commonly refer to as municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals. If you are, an exempt owner, you don't have to do anything. There's no filing requirement at all. However, if you are an affected owner, you you may not have to pay any tax, but you are still required to file the new form and complete it and qualify it for an exemption.
2: So you're telling me I got a country place down in the eastern townships and for one reason or another I'm not going to use it for six months or the next year because I'm traveling or doing something. Am I subjected to this UHT?
3: It'll depend on how you own the property. So as a can if you're a Canadian citizen and you own the property property personally, you won't have to file. But if you happen to own it through a corporation, a trust, or a partnership you will have to file. Uh, You will be entitled to some type of exemption. There are a lot of very tricky exemptions. Um, So determining what exemption applies and if it applies is not always straightforward. The form is nine pages long and has at least more than 10 different types of scenarios and exemptions available.
2: Yes. Yeah, so for those of us that are logistically challenged and can really get past entering our name, I guess we should be coming to to you, Shelley. So when are the forms and the payments due? And for those that don't file or file late, what are the what are the implications?
3: So here's the important thing to remember: this law came in for 2022. It was all the uh, payments and filings were typically required to be filed by April 30th. But because this was the first year and because it, it does, in fact, impact so many taxpayers, uh, the government announced an extension for this year only to October 31st of 2023. So everybody happy, has to be aware Halloween. that the filing deadline is this month for 2022.
2: So what are the penalties for all of this, Shelley? I mean, obviously, if you're either in non-filing or for late filing, there's there's got to be a cost here.
3: Yes. So this is uh, very important for anybody that might be impacted by these new rules. Penalties are quite severe. If you're an individual and you needed to file and you didn't, there's a minimum minimum penalty of $5,000 for every property that was not filed. If you're a corporation, that penalty is doubled to $10,000. So there's only a few more days left. if you own residential property in a corporation, partnership or trust, you will need to file even if you're exempt and please take note of these penalties because they are quite severe.
2: Hope you're not looking forward to sleeping between now and the 31st of October Shelly cuz by the time <laughs> uh, you know when this hits the air uh, there's uh, the, the 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 switchboard's going to light up.
1: Important details I think because such a recent law Not clear for many people. So thank you. Thank you, Shelley, for joining us. And don't forget, you can read more thought leadership and expert advice from the BDO team at BDO.ca. As we come to the end of the show, let's ask our entrepreneur, Chloe Ryan, CEO and founder of Acritic Robotics, for her one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs.
0: My biggest piece of advice, I think, regardless of the business, is just to pursue what you are trying to build with conviction and with speed. I think so many people are scared to fail and therefore they spend a lot of time sort of building quietly working away at their idea not wanting to tell very many people about it in case it doesn't in case it doesn't work and I think that's fine if it's a if it's a hobby if it's a passion project but if you're really trying to build a business I think it's essential to up the stakes by telling everyone around you about it I, that's what I did with acrylic. I went to everybody I knew and I said, I want to build painting robots. And people were like, you're crazy. But it meant that I got some support. And I think that that also means that, you know, you pump, you're, you're committing to the to the concept. And the goal here, macroscopically being to fail fast. Um, if you're going to fail, have it be in six months and not in six years where you can fail fast. You can pick up the pieces and you can start again. So, yeah, above all, I think it's, it's move with conviction and with speed and with passion. Being a company is fun.
1: (laughs) Which we can feel. We feel your passion. Thank you very much, Claire Ryan, CEO and founder of Acritic Robotics. Mike, any final thoughts?
2: Oh, give me a show any week where I've got passion and execution and a guest, <laughs> and we can we can turn it into gold. So, uh, <laughs> Chloe, uh, great initiative. But you know, from our end, uh, even more exciting is just this the way you come forward and what you're doing. So, thanks, uh, thanks for being here this week. And you know, I, I as I've said many many times, the biggest contributors to successful entrepreneurs over the years are those two qualities: passion and execution. And without those, it's really hard to really hard to get it done.
0: Yeah, thank you. No, I was, uh, and and I mean, thank you for having me. I one of my to-do items before Dragons Den launched was to reach out to some press or interviews or or whatever, like whatever that, just to, to help, you know, sort of promote the episode and the launch of the platform. And I had time to do basically nothing. And then I looked on my calendar and I went, wait a second, like six months ago. So uh, good timing and uh, helping me make up for the fact that I did a poor job at at trying to find other. Other press. That was great.
1: (laughs) Next week on Inspiring Entrepreneurs by Video Canada, we will talk with Jack Delaccio, CEO and founder of Essentia, about the mattress in a box frenzy, the importance of deep sleep, and how toxic products in your bedroom can negatively impact your health. A reminder that you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. Thanks, Mike. See you next week. Of TNKR Media. Good talk.